Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Hunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Tacticam. Tacticam is by far the easiest way to begin filming your hunts. Whether it's the budget-friendly solo or the 4K 5.0, Tacticam has something for everyone. Check them out at Tacticam.com. This year we're also partnering with Spartan Forge. Spartan Forge is machine learning for the deer woods. Using collared deer studies, trail camera photos, social media, car deer accidents... It is using all of that information to predict where deer are going to be and when. That coupled with weather data in your specific area. So uh, guys in the south are going to see uh, different movement at different times of the year than guys in Iowa, Michigan, or PA. Um, they have an incredible pro staff working with them. Andy May, Tra- Taylor Chamberlain, Garrett Peral, uh, Parker McDonald, All of these guys are top-notch, and they're vetting this right now as we speak. Um, Very soon, this is going to be available as the app. The app is in the beta. These guys are testing it. They wanted it to be perfect, and they're shooting for September as the drop-dead date for the app to come out. Now, what does that mean for you? Right now, there's a 14-day free trial. You can go on, sign up poke around on the website. Uh, The app has a lot more um, features um, than the uh, computer version does, Um, but the price is going to go up as soon as that app launches. So if you see what you like there on the computer, uh, spend the $15 and you'll be locked in at that price. Once the app launches, the price is going to go up. You can use code bow hunter and you can save 25 percent um and that price is grandfathered in for the entirety of you using it and there's a note section there's all these different things um all this input from their pro staff is being built into that app as we speak uh set to launch here very shortly uh check it out at spartanforge.ai and this week we're talking with todd mead so Todd kind of goes under the radar. He wasn't um, someone who I was familiar with until I was introduced to him from uh, one of our other guests, TJ Jordan. Um, And then looking into him, I mean, he's harvested a a mature buck uh, for like over the last 20 years going out of state. Um, He said his self or his party has been 100% um, on out-of-state hunts uh, for the last 20 years. So, I mean, that is incredible. And he talks about, you know, time in the woods and being lucky. Um, But as we talk with him, it's just more and more, um, you know, these little things that uh, it all comes back to woodsmanship and and like little things to pick up on. Um, I think you guys are really going to enjoy the episode. 
Um, Todd is a great guy and very open. Um, you know, if you've got questions, especially for you mountain hunters, as Todd uh, grew up and, and still lives in the Adirondacks and uh, hunts in that mountainous terrain where there's not a lot of deer, uh, big woods type setting. So um, I know you guys are going to like this. Got to get some stuff out of the way uh, for the Patreons. Uh, all the packages have been sent out. Um, I got some hats and shirts and everything sent out for uh, the newest Patreons and um, starting to compile the things for the uh, Patreon giveaway for this quarter. Uh, Going to be uh, another banger of a giveaway. We are giving away the set of tethered one sticks that we've got. Um, one of the latitude uh, methods, the, the method two. Um, we're giving away a set of ropes with that from Trophy Line and a Trophy Line EDP. So a complete saddle package. Uh, we're giving that away. Um, we're also partnered with Basemap. You know, Basemap just keeps throwing on and on and on uh, different layers. Uh, they got that overlay now where um, you just click the button and you wherever it is on your map, you just point it. It tells you how far away it is um, incrementally. Um, if you haven't checked that out, definitely do. Uh, $30 for the entire year. You can save 20% by using code Chronicles. Got to go online to do that. But Basemap gives away one of their pro packs uh, and a shirt and a hat that goes along with that. Spartan Forge, if you've heard about, we give away one of their uh, subscriptions. And um, Zinger Fletchings, uh, friends of ours, great guys, more Michigan companies. I'll be shooting those this year. Uh, shot them at the total archery challenge um can't say enough good things about them and you know if you go back and listen to our patreon question uh episode you know john and i uh differ on a lot of things because he's very particular uh but even john was impressed with the singers um so if you want to um you know support the show patreon is a crowdfunding for creators it, it helps us immensely um you know to be able to try out new things um to be able to do these giveaways, all of these uh, sorts of things. I mean, this uh, recorder I'm using, what I used to edit, uh, all of that is funded by Patreon. So uh, we can't thank you enough. Um, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash Chronicles podcast. Or you can just go to bowhunterchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Patreon link. Um, but we really do appreciate it. Uh, but if that's not your thing, no big deal. Uh, maybe you can give us a review. Um, click that five stars and let us know what you like about the show. Um, and then maybe tell somebody else about it. Uh, we are, you know, downloads are going through the roof. This is going to be our best month ever. Um, and that's because of you guys. And uh, we really do appreciate it. Um, and as always, thank you for listening. All right, everybody. Adam and John back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. Two in a row with John. It's uh it's some kind of miracle as we're coming here into, uh, you know, the, the end of the honeydew season and the very quickly approaching, uh, deer season. Um, but tonight we've got, um, Todd Mead on the line. Um, you know, a very accomplished, uh, public land hunter, uh, author, uh, maybe almost equally as impressively uh, as a, a tournament archer, um, so we got a lot to, to cover here tonight with Todd. So, so how are you doing tonight, Todd? I'm doing all right. Besides the hurricane that just kind of rolled through the Northeast and is kind of stuck here. Uh, we're doing all right. Just kind of waiting for it to pass. And that's uh, affecting you. Where are you at then? 
I am about an hour north of Albany, but I have a fr- lot of friends like through New England and the Northeast and it hammered some of them down in like central Connecticut, uh, you know, southern Connecticut. So it's we're just kind of getting the the latter parts of the rain up here, but they got pretty well pounded down there. Okay. Yeah, that's crazy. I've been out of town all weekend, so I haven't been paying attention to to anything. So that's kind of news to me. Um, yeah. But soon enough, we'll get the rain here in Michigan, probably from from all sides. But uh, yeah, so we were talking to Todd a little bit at the beginning, and he was getting into all this good <laughs> archery talk type stuff. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, hold on, we gotta wait a minute. So, uh, Todd, you know, as we do like with uh, introductions and stuff in the beginning, like, what is your like hunting history like from when you started as a as a kid or a young adult, whenever it was that you started hunting, what's, what's your family history with hunting and everything? Okay. My family history is somewhat strange with that. My father was brought up on a dairy farm and being brought up on a dairy farm. He never really had time to hunt because people who are familiar with farms know that farmers never have a day off and, you know, they're up early. They're up, uh, you know, they're up early. They stay up late. They never get any sleep. All they do is work. So as he got older, um, he started his family young with my mother and, uh, I was the last one born of the three of us kids and both of my parents were 22. So, uh, then my father decided he needed to make a career rather than working on the family farm. And he left the farm and went to work for general electric. So anyhow, that's kind of when his hunting started because he had more time. So my father's kind of a self-taught hunter and then he, you know, became pretty proficient at it. And then as I grew up, uh, you know, I got old enough to go with him and stuff. I started going, I didn't really enjoy it. I said I was going to be a trout fisherman because we had a lot of streams by where I live. And I just didn't like the idea of killing animals or, you know, being harmful to them. So I just told him I was going to be a trout fisherman. So he was good with that. and. I went with him occasionally, never had much interest. Well, as I got a little bit older into my teens, I began shooting a bow and, you know, cause he bow hunted also. And, uh, then I just took a liking to the bow and I found I wanted to be in the woods more and more. And that's kind of, he and I became, uh, you know, we were always father and son, but as I got older, I got out of college. Then we became father and son and best friends at the same time. So. And now I'm, I'm 52 now, my father's 74 and we're still the best of friends and still hunt together. Awesome. And so you're, I, I think I was reading this somewhere. I'd listened to it maybe on another podcast, but your dad was quite the hunter. It wasn't like he was just a guy that hunted, correct? You know, from your area. Oh yeah. My dad was, you know, my dad was well known. He killed a lot of big deer and he had a, his hunting partner was his best friend, Rob Miner. And, uh, I basically learned everything I learned from the two of them. And, uh, like as a kid, you know, I was shit. By the time I started hunting, I was probably, you know, like hunting regularly. I was probably 20 cause I was out of college and, uh, you know, just being mentored by them. It's, I learned more from them than I probably would, would have ever learned any place else. And what's your, 
preferred uh, style of hunting or what's the style of hunting that you grew up doing? Like what's your stomping grounds? Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in big woods because I'm from a mountainous area. I'm from the Adirondack Park, which is approximately and a half million acres. And, uh, it's all, you know, it's all like mountain, uh, between, uh, between no hunters and no deer. I really just had to learn how to uh, navigate in the woods and, and try to find any deer you could find because in my area where I grew up and where I still live, there just aren't a lot of deer. So if, if you can find deer here, you can find them any place. So that's basically how I grew up. Just try to find a deer. If you find one someplace, then go hunt that deer. So in all reality, I would call myself a stand hunter, um, but I've done a little bit of everything. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to, to get a little bit of that background because what I wanted to talk to you about today was, um, you know, maybe guys that are going on their first out-of-state hunt, um, how to plan that you've you've written a couple different books and i'm reading one uh the one that you had sent me about uh pursuing public land bucks and there's a lot of stuff on there about you know out of state and and kind of uh maybe um i don't know in the marines they call it breaking it down like mr potato head style like Uh, how to um you know step by step kind of kind of figure it out so i kind of wanted to go go into a little bit of that um what states have you hunted in oh man i've hunted a lot of states um i think i've hunted i don't know i let's just say basically everything from new york to uh colorado i mean pretty much across the the central part of the country okay and what has your success rate been for the for the listener uh as as far as what um you know uh you you yourself uh tagging a deer or your hunting party uh being successful um 100 percent. okay yeah that i mean like i said we've had these conversations before so i'm i'm familiar uh yeah, yeah. so and i mean i'll have to post a picture you you can send me the picture that you've got on the back of that book Barn. but but you know you see these guys that have the barn photos and i think maybe one of the more uh, popular ones or the one that comes to mind is Dan Infaults. And the one that Todd has on the back of there is all of that, if not more deer. I mean, it's, it's extremely uh, impressive. Um, so how did you end up like going out of state? Was that something that your, your dad and his hunting partner had always done or. Uh, uh, you want to know what? No, it, uh, that's really strange. I got involved in competitive archery in, uh, when I got out of college in 1991 and the more that I shot, I wanted to get, I wanted to get out of my state to shoot. So I started shooting regional stuff. I realized I was pretty good at it. And then I ended up, uh, shooting in national events. So as I started shooting national events, archery has always been a passion. Um, but I kind of grew up gun hunting cause there's really not a lot of, uh, good, bow hunting where I live. And I knew if I liked archery, I would really have to go out of the state to, you know, hunt with a bow a lot. So as I started uh, shooting in national tournaments, my goal in it 
was really to to meet people from different parts of the country to see if I could learn something about hunting in other places. And I also knew that other parts of the country, you know, the Midwest, for example, had big deer like what I was after. So uh, as I started shooting, I started meeting more people. And then eventually somebody invited me to go to Ohio. And I I really didn't want to go, even though I did, because I didn't want to leave my home state because I was so comfortable in it, in it. And I was killing a lot of big deer here. So, uh, you know, when you're trying something new, you don't, hunting season is so short. And, you know, I work a full-time job, nine to five, you know, and I just don't have a lot of time. And back then I had even less time. And, uh, I wasn't sure I wanted to blow a week or two to go someplace else to hunt when I knew I could hunt at home where I could be successful. Cause back then it was about being successful, but my dad and I took a chance. We went to Ohio and, uh, I killed a really good 12 pointer that year on a piece of public land that a guy had shown me. And I met him only a few months earlier in Nelsonville, Ohio at the third leg of the IBO national triple crown. And he told me if I came out, he'd show me a piece of public land with about 4,000 acres. And, uh, then he just let me go there and see if I liked it. So I'm like, okay. So we went out, we tried it. And, uh, since that year, I think it was 2000, maybe might've been 99. Uh, I've been going someplace every year. So on that first hunt for your, um, for your first time headed out of state, uh, what was your preparation like going into it? See, now that wasn't a big deal for me because we, where I hunt back here, I hunt in a tent. Uh, it's about three miles from the nearest road. So like I've always camped in a tent. So when I was going to, I don't like to spend any money if I don't have to. So what I did is I researched, we found a place to camp out there and the camping was free, you know, cause we were on public land and, and you could camp there. So uh, really all I needed was a tent and uh, we, we brought our tent and, you know, of course the fly for the rain and all that stuff. And, uh, and then we brought our stand, I, we brought two stands. I brought a climbing stand and a portable stand. And so between my dad and I, I think we had four stands and then we had our, our, basically our camping gear. And uh, that was about it, you know, our hunting gear. So in all reality, I didn't need too much. And then we decided when we were out there, we would buy our food at a, you know, like a grocery store out there. And uh, then we would just make our own food every day. Then we wouldn't have to spend any money on food or anything. That's cool. So before, so you got all that set up and then did you do any, like, I mean, did this guy kind of give you the lay of the land? Yeah, this is great. He, he, See, now I come from an area that's really huge. Like every few years or whatever, we have people who get, they get lost in the Adirondacks and they, you know, potentially some of them die. And, uh, there are places where there are, it's 20 to 40 miles between roads. So you, you could get lost and die if you're not a woodsman. So, uh, this guy brings me into the woods and he's going to show me a bunch of places and just kind of point out areas like this is good. That's not good. Blah, blah, blah. So he brings us in the woods and uh, we're walking around and I'm like, I have a pretty good grip on it. Then he brings me into this one spot and he says, okay, and it's getting kind of towards dark. It's like dusk out or whatever. You can see car lights. And he says, now this spot right here, this might be one of the best places there is in here. He says, 
but make sure you get out of here before dark because you can get lost in here and you may never get out. <laughs> and I, I just stood there and I laughed to myself because I could hear cars going by on the road and I could see car lights. I'm like, ah. I said to him, I said, I think I can probably get out. We'll be okay. <laughs> so, uh, but I mean, I understand it because some people don't come from where I come from. So, I mean, you have to be a little bit prepared. And, and back then there were no, you know, Onyx maps. There really weren't cell phones per se. And uh, so, I mean, I would just recommend being a good woodsman if you're going to, you know, go out there and venture around, like don't rely on technology. Okay. And so what led you to success on that hunt? Was it the yeah, spot well, that you had to leave before dark? Or? Yeah. No, that was just my story, but uh, I sometimes I get off track. But uh, so what led me to success is this, like we cover a lot of ground where we hunt at home because you have to cover a lot of ground to find deer. So going into it, I knew there were 4,000 acres of land to look over. That's a lot of acreage. Okay. So what we did is we broke it down into sections. We figured we'd waste half our week scouting while hunting, and then we would figure out what we wanted to do the rest of the week. So all we did is covered a bunch of ground. Then we'd come back, we'd meet, we'd kind of take notes, share information and said, did you, what did you find here? What did you find there? So in the end, we had all these areas that we had scouted, and then we decided to try certain areas. So we went back to those areas, and then we kind of branched out from there. But when we were scouting, I was actually hunting. Like, I would find a good place. I'd hunt there in the morning. Then I would walk the rest of the day, and I'd hunt someplace else in the evening. So I was getting sits in between. But then towards the end of the week, I decided, okay, these these are the places where we really need to spend more time at. And has that changed um, over the years uh, with the advent of Onyx and um, any of the, the, you know, base map, the newer uh, GPS and the mapping and Google Earth? Um, has, yeah. has your process changed? Yeah, my process hasn't changed, but it's changed hunting. And in my opinion, it's not for the best because uh, now a lot of these public lands now are like a three ring circus. Uh you know, there's every, almost every person I see now is walking by me with a phone in their hand. And to me, it's annoying. I grew up with a map and a compass and I learned how to get around the woods. And now I think if some of these people, if their phones went dead, they'd be in trouble. Um, so it really hasn't changed the way that I, you know, kind of break land down what I'm looking for. But now I I do it a little bit differently because now I try to avoid people or I try to get in areas where people are hunting, where I think that they'll push deer, where deer will try to get out of when they're going into wherever they're going. Okay. Now, the the scouting well hunting thing, and the reason I asked that question with the GPS mapping involved is... I think personally, and I think a lot of guys, like you said, you know, you're, you're coming at this where we only have, let's say you have five days or seven days and you're going to kind of just burn through some of these areas where I feel like everything in your body is saying you should be hunting, you should be hunting. And then with the maps, you know, maybe back in the day, you know, at that time you didn't have to like you didn't have the resource of the you know, Onyx or Google earth or, you know, base map telling you 
this is where you need to be. This is what it looks like. So you felt maybe you had to burn through some of those areas a little bit more. But I think guys nowadays look at their phone and they're like, I got to hit this spot. I got to hit this spot. Um, you know, do you still scout hunt those first three days or, oh, yeah. or so? Yeah. Cause there's, there's nothing in the woods that, that you can act without going someplace. There's nothing on that map that you can predict. Like you can, you can think that it looks really good, but you might get there and there might be something in that piece of woods that even though that piece of terrain looks like awesome, incredible, I'm going to find giant bucks here. I'm going to find piles of deer here. There might be something in that piece of woods that just prevents that from happening. So we still just burn boot leather and, uh, you know, find what we can find. And don't get me wrong. Like I'll look on those same things. I use them also. And, uh, I'll go to the places that look good, but I'm, I'm still going to go elsewhere. I'm going to look other places because, you know, deer, deer don't always go where they're supposed to be. And so on the, the, the checkerboard of, of podcast bingo, um, one of, one of the hot button topics in one of the, like, uh, I don't know. I want to say like pet peeves as a listener, but, and as a, as a host, I guess is hot sign, right? So everybody says, well, you just got to find the hot sign. And when you talk to regular guys or guys that are just learning, they might not know what deer tracks look like or, you know, rubs a rub for, a uh, or a scrape, you know, how to differentiate the two. So what is it specifically as you're scouting through these areas? Is it that you're looking for? You know, I know one thing that it, I mean, this, this comes up a lot. Like I've heard it a lot from, you know, quote unquote experts. Um, and they always tell you like, you're never going to shoot a big buck buck off a well-used runway. And I can tell you that's 100% false. I've killed multiple big bucks off well-used runways and uh, especially if you're hunting during the rut or something, because those well-used runways are well-used for a reason. And it might just be a parade of does or a doe family or two going up and down those runways. So if you're sitting on a runway, I mean, any buck, whether it's mature or not mature is going to go after the ladies. So if the ladies are marching up main street, the big bucks are going to go down main street. If they're going down the side street, they're going to go down the side street. So, you know, like when people are asking like, what should I do? I've never done it before. Well, go look for runways. Cause if you know, if there are a lot of runways in there, you know, most likely there are a lot of deer in there where there are more deer. You probably have higher odds of seeing deer in there. There may be a chance there are more mature bucks in that area. Or any bucks for that matter. Okay, I think that's great. I mean, for anybody, really. One of the things that I know that I lack is, I mean, I'm learning, but the ability to shift. So, you know, I'll set up on, you know, whatever I think is good, but then the, I'll see the deer way over there. And, and historically, I would say, man, I hope they come over here later or you know, they make their way over here rather than going to where the deer are and, and, and using that information. Because, I mean, I, I feel like even 
in your scenario there, sitting on a well-used runway or in an area where there's a lot of runways, you're going to see how the deer, you're going to be at least in the game, seeing where the deer are, how they're using that area, right? Yeah, that's one of the biggest things. Like today when I was uh, driving down the road, I was talking to my friend Brian, who's my primary hunting partner, and we, we were kind of discussing this. And I think one of the things that has allowed me to become a, a good hunter, I watch a lot of deer. So if you're in areas where you're watching deer, you can almost, if you're there for, you know, a little bit of time, like here, there, wherever, like different pieces of woods, eventually you can kind of pick up on what deer do. And sometimes they don't do what you expect them to do. But if you have good visual cues, like just act on them, but then don't act hastily like make sure you're making an informed decision because sometimes you can make the wrong decision when you when you decide to move you should have stayed so it's you know you need to really it's almost like a sixth sense you need to trust your gut but also use the data that you have so it's kind of you know just do what you think is best in all reality but just pay attention to what's going on around you so outside of a hot tip from a, a, and I've, I've heard you talk on other podcasts and things about like going on forums or, you know, trying to find an area that, you know, holds good deer. That's going to be worth your time going to, but uh, outside of, um, you know, someone telling you, Oh, this piece over here holds good deer. Um, as you're planning your trips, what are you looking for in a piece of ground to spend a week or two weeks hunting? Uh, I'm looking for the same thing that is right where you are right now. Okay. <laughs> what What do you have where you're sitting right now? Uh, my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong answer. <laughs> you have food, water, and bed, right? Okay. You can go to you can grab a bite to eat. Um, you have water. You go to the water faucet, get a drink, and you have your. I'd imagine your bed's there someplace. You can go to sleep. Okay. So uh, if you can find food, water, and cover in one area, you're going to, you're going to be successful. There's no real if, and, or but. So, I mean, as far as food, like say, say you find, if you find water, you're going to find green and deer eat a lot of green stuff, like whether it's shrubs or stuff like that. So find food and, and water in the same area you're you're probably going to be pretty well off if you spend a lot of time kind of searching around that area so i mean my biggest tip like if i were going to tell somebody just find uh find food water and cover and get as close as you can to the cover where the cover and the food come together okay and then for um i I guess from that strategy why are you that close to food and cover uh because like I mean, I hunt, I don't know, I'm not familiar with most of your listeners, but I try to hunt more mature deer. Mm-hmm. And when you're hunting on most public land, it, it receives a fair amount of pressure, most of it. I mean, all of it doesn't. But I mean, it definitely sees pressure. There's very few pieces of public land that receive no pressure. So with pressure, the bigger deer are going to need cover, and they're also going to need to eat. So a lot of times they won't be moving too far from their cover to their food. So if you can get both of those close together, you're probably going to increase your odds of uh, possibly seeing, a, you know, like a more mature animal. 
and when you're looking for that uh, trifecta of things and you're going out of state, I imagine that there's probably zero um, in the areas that you hunt in New York in the Adirondacks. Does like agriculture, farm fields, crops, any of that play into how you're picking and choosing these parcels? Uh, yep, but I try to do research on all the farmers and I'll call them if I have to. Um, if I look around a piece of public land and it's got like, you know, crop fields or whatever, we all know deer feed in crop fields. Deer feed more readily in crop fields that aren't being hunted and that don't have stands all along the edge of them. So if I can find a crop field that's near a piece of public ground and has a little bit of room in between it, like, I mean, that, you know, it's probably going to be a good spot because they'll be coming out of the field in the morning and they'll be going into the field at night. So if you can learn a little bit about the, you know, the different farming parcels around where you're hunting, then you're going to probably be a little bit better off. So one of the reasons I asked that question is it seems like a lot of times that's what I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to, to frame it. The, the kind of every man hunter wants to set up on a field edge. They want to set up on crops, you know, because they're going to see deer. Maybe they'll see them a long ways away or they see all the scrapes and the scrape lines and stuff. Um, and I guess to that point, like, how do you deal with pressure and other hunters? Or are you just trying uh, you know, to avoid everybody and not go into areas where there's people hunting. No, I'll go into places where people are hunting. I prefer not to, but at the same time, like coming from where I come from, when I, when I kind of map out an area that I want to look at or that I want to try hunting, I pick the biggest pieces of land that I can find because I know that it gives me a chance to get away from people. The tighter the land is, I mean, the more, chance you have of seeing someone if they're in there so i mean i will hunt tight parcels but i'll make sure nobody's parked there and then if i go in there and there's sign of people then i probably won't return unless unless there's a really good reason to return there so i mean in all reality i don't i don't pay a lot of attention to people for the most part um i know that the vast majority of people are lazy and uh and i just kind of trust my woodsmanship skills the better you become in the woods without any electronic devices, the better hunter you'll become. And I guess what resources would you have for, for guys on that perspective other than like, well, take your compass and get lost and figure it out. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, the, the biggest thing you can do. Okay. Like if you're going to go into a piece of woods, all you do is you bite off little pieces. You don't bite off a huge chunk and get yourself lost. So if you're in the piece in a piece of woods, then I always try to find landmarks because every piece of woods has landmarks. And whether it's like, say, a huge oak tree right here, and then 200 yards past that oak tree, there's this like little dried up creek bed. So, I mean, I kind of use a bunch of, uh, you know, like topographical features inside the woods and like, uh, you know, trees, different types of trees, uh, you know, like a little clearing here, maybe a little cut off there. And I just, Every time I go, I try to expand my area. So as I'm expanding my area, it's getting bigger and bigger, and I'm becoming more familiar with it. If you walk into your house, like say you have company in, and they walk into your house, they come into the kitchen. 
So they know they're in the kitchen, but they always ask you, hey, where's the bathroom? So then they got to go to the bathroom. You say, oh, it's the second door down there on the left. So then they go down, they find it second door on the left. So the next time they come to your house, they say, hey, I got to use your bathroom. They just walk to the second door on the left. And being in the woods is pretty similar to that. You just have to pay attention to your surroundings. Okay. And you can't do that when you're looking down at the phone the whole time, right? There you go. But you can mark you can mark those things on your phone, though. Yeah. But then when your phone dies, you're like, man, where the hell do I go now? Or where am I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there are a lot of compass. You know, you can, you can get online, and I would imagine, I'm guessing, you could get online and, uh, you know, find an orienteering class, or you, you could probably even do it. Uh, you know, you could probably even do it at a, they might give like those classes at a school someplace, like, you know, like a night class, like once a week or something. So are you, and, still, uh, are you still using like topo maps or, you know, yeah, so years ago, before we had Onyx and all that, I would go to like the local township hall. Yep. And they always had aerial photos and there, and then you could buy a copy of it. And yep, so they still have. Yeah. And so that's what I would do back then. So that's basically what you're still doing. You could still do that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I still have a topo map of, uh, I mean, I keep them and some of them I laminate. So I can put it in my backpack backpack and I'll just carry it with me. So you, you can tell where you are on a topo map. It's pretty easy if you, you know, if you study those things, so you, you are familiar with how they work. Right. I mean, if you're not comfortable with that, then yeah, sure. Use your phone. I mean, I, I'm just kind of anti-technology just because I, maybe I'm envious that all the people have it now and I didn't have it then. <laughs> so I'm just a rebel and I don't want to use it. <laughs> so, um, I guess any tips for like utilizing your your compass along with your phone or a GPS. So for guys that, you know, maybe, maybe carry a compass, but have no idea how to use it or, you know, because everybody says, well, you just need to carry a compass. Well, yeah, I, I yeah. Mean, for that is I carry, uh, I carry a Garmin Rhino, which is, uh, it's a GPS unit with a radio in it. And the reason I carry it is because if I'm hunting with somebody and they talk to me on the radio, I know instantly where they are. It tells me exactly where they are on the map. Like it, it, it pinpoints them on the map. So like if I'm hunting with my father, the reason we got these, cause I'm a type one diabetic in one day, I was talking to him on the radio and I went unconscious, like under the tree where I was. And cause I had just gotten out of the tree stand and my blood sugar was so low. I went unconscious and, uh, and he knew something was wrong because I was talking on the radio. And then it was dead. And uh, so we got those radios so you can pinpoint where your hunting partner is when you talk to him. So anyhow, like say he had his radio out and it said, uh, said Todd is 0.04 miles to the north of you. So I can just get my compass out. I can look at it and the red arrow always points point north. So you can just say, okay, north, and then you just follow the red arrow. And then you can just pull the, the GPS back up and then you're, you're making ground and it's like, okay, you're, you're 150 yards away and he's to the North. So, you know, just keep following it to the North, follow the red arrow to the North till you get there. Yeah. I mean, that's what, 
So I I actually had one of those rhinos for that exact same reason, but I can tell you one of the downfalls of the rhino is, um, and you apparently have not uh, encountered this, is if you leave it in the woods, you can't. It's very difficult to retrieve, <laughs> especially if you get the nice green one. I can tell you a story about that. Yeah. <laughs> I have a friend who can't keep track of anything. <laughs> he had a yellow one and he got excited. He wounded a deer and he started running through the woods. It fell out of his pocket and it was yellow and we never found it. So, <laughs> Well, yeah. I did. I did a very similar thing as I was walking through the woods in Michigan's upper peninsula and saw the biggest buck that I've ever seen in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And it was dog and does and everything. So I set all my stuff down and I got my bow ready and I did some grunt calls and stuff. And then they, he chased them off a ways. And I thought I scooped up all my stuff and I made my way out and got up a tree and I was taking inventory of all my stuff. And yeah, that green color was a poor idea. So now John can attest to this. When we went to Idaho, I had uh, like uh, orange duct tape on everything, on every single thing, because I'm like, if I set it down, I'm going to pick it up. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can relate. Yeah. So, I mean, like for me, what I do is I always am using my phone and then like when I get out of the truck, I take a bearing with my compass so I yeah. know what way I'm headed and what way I have to come back. And I mean, yeah, uh, there's been a lot of times where the phone is not telling me what is actually happening. Like it, it would point and say this way is north. And I know for a fact that's not north. So yeah, yeah. I go the way that I need to. And then I, I watch the little line pick me up and say, oh, yeah, yeah. Or we do like the ZZ Top, you know, or. John doesn't <laughs> like my version of navigating. Yeah. He likes to he likes to walk all through the woods. and Yeah. On that topic, there are very few people, I think, who hunt together that I know of like to navigate the same way. Like my <laughs> has a whole different idea of it than I do. And Brian has a different idea than I do. And we all think are right. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. <laughs> uh, well, I i mean, John is very, like I said, John is the bow guy. John's very analytical. John's very like, let's do this thing one time. And I'm like, oh, it's just over here. And then like you get there and you're like, actually, it's over there. Okay. But I'm, I mean, I'm using the landmarks. I'm like, see, we're on the right edge, John, but we just, like it's, it's just over here. It's dark out. <laughs> And if you had a, I mean, the, the one story that we're talking about is we're going to the spot. He's like, all right, we got this. I'm going to bring you to this tree over here. And he was going to film. And uh, it ended up, there was another hunter in the area. And we talked to him before we left. And he was kind of going in the same same vicinity, but not, we were, we were going to be fine. And I'm like, dude, that guy 
was sitting in his tree watching us walk around in circles like, what are these clowns doing? <laughs> but but that guy killed a deer that morning. Yeah. And John was at full draw on a pretty nice buck. So, I mean, uh-huh. it, it, we everything was fine. It was yeah. all fine. Yeah. Trust me, it everybody. Um, the only thing that wasn't fine was my freaking camel. It was sweated up so bad. I ended up at the bottom of the tree with no shirt on, just trying to like cool off and dry shit out. <laughs> but uh, that's great. It was fun. <laughs> we call that making memories. Right? <laughs> In all reality, people go hunting and, you know, I think a lot of people make too big a deal about killing deer. When, if I can just go have fun and make, memories like what you guys just talked about you're still laughing about it in all reality that's that's what means the most to me and i've i've been fortunate enough to be around a a lot of really good people and people who really know what they're doing have a lot of experience and that probably is what has allowed me to to be successful but i'll tell you what i have way more better memories than deer that i've killed so Now, I've heard you talk about, and I read about it in the book, where you were talking about, like, finding, like, a hunting partner. I think John and I are, like, 100% the, like, odd couple um, Uh as far as as that's concerned. Um, So, can you share a little bit, like, your thoughts on, like, hunting with other people? You know, because some people are just so absolutely... They just want to do it their own way. They want to be by themselves. They can't. They can't handle it. Other people like like a deer camp experience, but they're not serious about hunting. Um, you you, know. you want to, in reality if you if you want a true hunting partner, you really just need somebody you can get along with. It doesn't matter how they do it or you know this or that. You really just need the same basic priorities, in my opinion, because I I'm goal driven. And I have, I'm goal driven. I'm hardworking. Um, I'm motivated. I don't want to hunt with somebody who's unmotivated. It doesn't work for me because it doesn't drive me. If I'm hunting with somebody who's motivated and they're motivated, then we can pick each other up if one of us is getting down or something. And if, uh, you know, if I want to go hunt someplace that's really hard to hunt, like just rugged, rugged country, I know I don't have to ask more than once that person's going with me. And, uh, you know, and I, I'm in a different circumstance, like being a type one diabetic, sometimes I need help and, uh, I want to have somebody I can really rely on. I know I can rely on the person. I mean, I can get it done if I have to myself, but having a partner you can rely on makes your life a lot easier because you never have to wonder, oh man, am I going to get stuck in here? Or is, you know, am I going to be able to get out of here if something happens to me? But if you have a, you know, good hunting partner who, you know, values your, your worth and, and your time and stuff like that, it just makes it a lot easier. I think like for me, I think like having like a, not necessarily like a team aspect of it, but like, you know, be wanting the other guy to succeed, you know, uh, I I've heard before. Like, you know, one of our guys tell me, you know, uh, you know, hunting is a jealous man sport. And that like, just, uh, I'm just taken aback by that. Cause it's like, I don't feel that way. Like, right. I want <laughs> you guys to, to succeed just as much. I just want to be there for the, for the party, you know, like at the end. 
Like I tell everybody this, like I, I've gained a lot of notoriety over the, over the years, but I have different outlets. Like I, when I wrote a book, I knew that I needed to do something to sell it. And you can't just write a book and have people expect to buy it. So how am I going to sell this book if I, if I write it? So when I wrote it, I knew I had to do outdoor shows. So I started doing outdoor shows in my region with a display. And then I started doing seminars where I spoke. And uh, then, you know, then I found my way into magazines and stuff like that. But the guys that I hunt with, they are probably better hunters than me. It's just, I got all the notoriety for it. And like, I have myself, but then all the people I hunt with, you know, my father and my buddy, Brian, and, and a couple other guys, their success is just as great as mine. There are so many good hunters out there that nobody's ever heard of and nobody ever would. I don't consider myself like a good hunter. I consider myself somebody who spends a lot of time in the woods, who spending that much time in the woods, I'm, I'm going to get lucky. And uh, there are so many people like me that nobody's ever heard of. And those guys probably know more than any official expert out there. And I value, I value their opinions and conversations more than anything else. So if you can ever find people like that, people who talk the least usually know the most. People who have to promote themselves usually are, there's something behind it. And the promotion that they're putting into themselves then there's a reason I was once told, like, if you see a lawyer on the back of a phone book, like a lawyer is being advertised on the back of a phone book, don't call that lawyer. There's a reason they're advertising. They shouldn't have to advertise. Right. And I think, you know, all of our, our hardcore listeners are saying, that's why we don't ever hear from John on the podcast. That's <laughs> why he's over there being all quiet. Uh, like in doing the seminars and stuff, what do you think is the most common question or the most uh, common like misconception that you you've encountered from from guys? The the biggest misconception probably is that people think it's easy to kill a deer in the Midwest because they see all these shows on TV and they think you can go to a piece of public land in the Midwest and just smash a big buck and that's just not going to happen. Um like people think that I just you know, that I go out there and I get lucky and, you know, and it's because I'm a so-called quote unquote expert. There's nothing farther from the truth. Um, I put in piles of work and I have incredible hunting partners and it's a team effort. And the reason I can go into these pieces of land and kill deer regularly is just because of all the hard work and people never see all the hard work behind everything. I've heard people when I'm giving seminars, because usually they're, they coincide with a, like an outdoor show or something. And I have a pretty good, uh, you know, booth that I set up with a lot of deer heads. I've heard people stand beside them and say, I'd do anything to kill bucks like that. And then every once in a while, I don't do it too often, but I walk over and I say to the person, would you really? And they said, yeah, I would. I said, would you get up at three o'clock in the morning and walk through pouring down rain for three hours to get to where you want to go? said, would you, would you paddle a canoe across the freaking lake in the middle of the night to get to where you want to go before morning? You know, would you drive 10 hours to go, uh, you know, to be where you want to be in the morning to hunt that first day because you think that first day might be the best one? Like, people just don't see all that stuff. <laughs> right. I think I've done all of those things. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't get it. 
it's funny, John just pointed at me. We the big deer that I killed in Ohio, we we had it down to this was the exact day that we saw him last year, and we just read some articles or heard a podcast or something that said if there was a deer in the area on the same day last year and he's still alive, very likely you're going to see him that day. So I got out of work and we drove like seven hours or something. Yeah. Got our license, slept two hours, and I shot that deer 45 minutes after being in the stand. Yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, I have all sorts of factual data, trail camera stuff that can prove that. So uh, on these out-of-state hunts, how are you using trail cameras? It seems like in a one-week setting, and yeah. I think with the with the yeah, my my perception, I think, is like walking through all of your good air, and, and that, maybe that goes back to like the the GPS, the base map type stuff, where you know you're you've got the spot that you want to hunt, and now you're going to go traipse around all over around it you know, after you've hunted that first sit in the morning and then you've got a trail camera out there, a big giant scent wick for the guys that are into that sort of thing. Like how are you using those on a one or two week hunt? Um, see, this is, this is hard because most people won't be able to do this. My friend, Brian is a millwright union worker. So he busts his ass for, you know, pretty much 10 months of the year. And then he takes all of hunting season off. So, and my father is retired. So what I do is I do all of the map work and then I send them out there and I tell them every place that I want them to check out. And what they'll do is they'll put trail cameras, like basically in a 60 mile radius, every place that I, I told them to go look. So last year, I think we had 27 trail cameras out. And they're not for, they're really not for the year that I'm hunting for the most part. They're for future data. Do I ever want to go back here? Are there places that I can, you know, that are going to be good in this general area? So I use it for like data. And if I find different stuff on there that I, that I'm impressed by, then I'll go back there. Um, Another thing I've noticed too, in a few places I hunt in the Midwest Say you go to a stand and you have a trail camera there. If you go there and it's getting lit up at a scrape, like, you know, maybe in the last 24 hours, last two days, that buck most likely isn't going to go too far and he'll, he'll be back. So, you know, get your ass in the tree stand and get ready. Cause he's probably coming back. And, uh, we've, we've killed multiple deer like that. Okay. And then that just made me think of something else. Like, probably the most controversial topic that we'll we'll talk about is uh your theory on hunting the wind. Ah, uh, yep. <laughs> and so for guys in a, you know, 7-day hunt, uh you know, they're down there for even like a a long weekend type deal like for us being in Michigan in proxi- proximity to Ohio, you know, you could go down there for for 4 days and, you know, not burn a lot of vacation but still be on big yeah. deer but if the wind is wrong but it's the peak of the rut you know november 8th 9th 10th something like that like how do you play the wind okay now are we were we talking kind about you where the wind was wrong for four or five days or or just in ge- just in general okay so how do you know the wind's wrong well the 
weather app says the wind's going to be. How do you know if it's public land, you never hunted there. How do you know where the deer is coming from? Just what I. Uh, Because while you're thinking, right? Right. Yeah. See, so this is what I tell people. While you might think a deer is going to come from someplace like in the woods, there are no guarantees, especially during rut time, what way a deer is going to come from. Um, so I really don't pay attention to the wind. I never really have. I mean, there are some places where I do, but very few. And, uh, when the, when the wind comes, I mean, deer can come and go as quick as the wind. And for the vast majority of places where you're going to hunt in the wind with, you know, like we'll use Ohio, for example, cause there are like Ohio is known to be hilly from, you know, central Ohio South. So in those hilly areas, because I live in a hilly area, um, the wind changes constantly. I mean, it, it changes all the time. Like your weather app might say it's coming out of the west, and then you get in the tree, and it might be actually like southwest one minute. Then like seven minutes later, it might be out of the north. It's just kind of like swirling, blowing all over the place. So really, that's why I don't pay a lot of attention to the wind. And I've seen deer come from every different direction. And I've also seen deer, like, a lot of times they got to be pretty much on top of you to wind you. I mean, just the way the air currents blow and stuff like that. And uh, so, I mean, overall, that's really why I don't I don't give it a lot of thought, really. I mean, it's different if you're hunting on the edge of a field. You know, if the wind's blowing into the woods and you're on the edge of the field, like, you know, you probably shouldn't be sitting there because the, the deer are going to be coming out of the woods. Mm-hmm. So what is your scent control regimen uh this is another thing i actually i brought a young kid with me the other day he's like 27 and we were talking about this and i have a philosophy on this and i don't know if there's any truth to it i'm just it's my philosophy i think some people give off way more odor than other people and uh I honestly don't think I give off a lot of odor because I very rarely get winded. However, my father gets winded all the time. And sometimes we can sit in the same stand on different days and I can have deer walk right to me and never get winded. And then he, he gets winded. But then again, I don't sweat too much either. Like in, uh, he and my buddy, Brian, they sweat a lot. I mean, granted, we do change our clothes when we get there. But I just never have sweat much. And I just think that some people just give off more odor than others. So you're not like using any scent sprays or washing your clothes specifically or? Never done anything and probably never will. Okay. Although father did win an ozone thing there, uh, ozonics thing. He won one this year at the, I think he won it at the IBO World Championship, so he might give that a try. But he stinks, and I don't. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I, that's just one more thing to carry, one more thing to worry about, one more yeah. like I don't know. So when you're going into a spot, I mean, you say you don't, but if there's like a steady wind, and you're yeah, and you got a really good runway, and say it's a north wind, it's coming out of the north. And you have an option. Obviously, you're going to sit on the south side so the wind isn't, you know, blowing in. Or don't you care? You're just going to pick the tree that. Well, one thing that I do is, like, runways are weird because, uh, like, most runways, in my experience, have two-way traffic. So, 
it would all determine on the like I'd have to determine it on the history of if I know the place. Um, because if I went in there, like what you just said, and I didn't know the area, I don't really know what I would do. I might avoid it until maybe I got a better idea what the deer did there, or I would try to study maybe the tracks and the runways to determine, is this the primary way they use the runway? Then I, you know, then of course I wouldn't be limiting myself by setting up right where the wind's going to blow if they're coming down the runway that way. Yeah. Well, to, to go on top of John's question, and the reason why I brought up the wind at that point was you had talked about like uh, hunting a scrape or finding something um, uh, like a scrape area. So, how are you hunt- setting up on scrapes? Like, what side of the wind or what side of the the area? Uh, I don't really pay a lot of attention to the wind, to be honest. If I find a scrape, um, I just try to find where I think the deer is going to come from, and in all of my experience in scrape hunting, I've usually killed the deer, you know, either, you know, fairly early in the morning before the wind's really blowing a whole lot or in the evening when the wind's kind of calm. I've never had a lot of luck around scrapes when the wind was wailing. Now, are you, so are, what equipment are you, are you still using like climbing or a, a climbing I, tree stand? I use uh in places where I really think I have, uh, you know, like a past history with, I might set up a portable stand there. But for the most part, I carry, I've had a lone wolf since people didn't know what lone wolf was. And I just carried on my backpack with backpack strap or on my back with backpack straps. And I just towed around the woods with it. And if I find a place that looks good, then I'll just sit there and I'll try it for the night. Okay. And then, you know, like some guys that are worried, I mean, John Eberhard, he, he goes up 30 feet in the tree. Are you going up super high or, or just to no. where the cover is? I, I shot, like, I don't like to admit this, but, but I shot at the two biggest bucks in my life in the same day. And I was no higher than eight feet in a tree. <laughs> and I missed them. <laughs> well, as I wounded one and missed the other one. Right. So, and one was probably, it was borderline Booner. It's the one that's on the front of my book. Okay. And uh, the reason for that is uh, I try to use the cover of the tree. Right. I mean, like this tree was perfect because it there was a bush like right, right at like that eight foot level. So I knew I was covered pretty much by the bush. And uh, as far as getting high in a tree, like I, I've shot a lot of archery. And there are a lot of archers out there who are hunters who are not good shooters. And uh, the higher you get in that tree, the less and less area you have to hit. Right. And Cutting out the yeah, angle. Yeah. And uh, under a pressure situation, people, like I've shot with zillions of people. And uh, the vast majority of hunters who don't do target archery, tournament archery, the vast majority of them are not good shooters, even though they think they are. They think they're good in their backyard until they head into a range, and then they they see people who are proficient with a bow, and it's a it's an eye opening experience. Yeah, I mean, we we talked a little bit about this, and this is why where I told you like, hey, stop. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so with your your history with um, tournament archery. Like, how did that come about, and then how has that helped you in these types of 
situations in this scenario? Yeah, it came about when I uh, when I got actually when I went to college, I and I I joined an archery club and I started shooting archery. Then I'm like, okay, I want to do this to get better at shooting deer because I wounded all sorts of deer. I missed them, and I always kind of panicked when I saw a deer. So I want I knew I always got nervous, so I want shoot better when I saw a deer. So I started shooting locally and then I went national and, uh, and I knew that like the feelings I got, like even on target number one, like I always get a little antsy, a little nervous, breathing, a little bit of shaking. Uh, I knew if I could get through that, I'd be able to like under pressure. So, uh, I just kind of, that's what got me into it. And then along the way I was, I was able to, you know, I was able to win a lot of different things, uh, on the amateur level. And then I've had a lot of success and, uh, I, it's just made me better. I mean, cause if you can perform under pressure, it's the same feeling I get when I see a big buck, like there's nothing that can replicate it except for that. For me, if I'm in a big shoot off or something on a national level, it's the same exact feeling as when I see that big buck and I draw my bow but I'm so programmed now because I've done it for so long. I just follow the program until the arrow's gone. And I don't worry about, oh, that deer is going to be on my wall or I need to get the shot here. I need to do that. I just focus on making a good shot. If you make a good shot, then the arrow's going to go where it's supposed to go. The vast majority of people are going to pull their bow back. They're going to get the, they're going to rush the pin to wherever it's got to go. It might not even get to where it wants to go. And they're just going to jack the trigger. I mean, they're going to jump on the trigger so bad that they'll come out of their shoes. And a lot of people are really successful doing it, but then a lot of people have some issues. So I got to ask you, um, when you missed the two biggest deer of your life, was this pre-target archery or post? Uh, it was, I don't know, three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so so what happened? Uh, this is what happened. I had both deer on trail camera at a scrape in this same place so the reason i'm there in that oh this this whole story goes together and in the and i'm in that tree that's only like eight feet tall or whatever so i sat up there because i knew those deer were in there in the scrape in the daylight so i'm like well maybe they'll come back and then i it was like one o'clock in the afternoon and i look up this ridge and i'm like holy cow here he he's following a doe so uh he's coming down the hill and uh I can see him coming. I'm like, wow, he's going to come right by me. And because the doe came down, she stopped in front of me. She's 10 yards from me. And then uh, when she stopped, he stopped. And I, I have no shot at him because he's right looking directly at me. And I'm facing more towards the doe because she cut to the side. I'm like, okay, as soon as he walks by that tree, I'm going to let him have it. So he started walking and he's getting to the other side of the tree. And then the doe took off. She ran. And then I just gave him a and he and he was running then he started running and i just panicked and i punched the trigger and hit him in the rear end so uh i'm like and then afterwards i'm like oh my god i i got shook up i mean <laughs> you know i just got shook up i took a bad shot i did something i shouldn't have and uh you know like looking back on it, it's like wow that was dumb but in all reality i the reason i i hit the deer is i never should have shot at it but I was so excited. I couldn't even prevent from punching the trigger because the deer was so big. 
So then I'm sitting there beside myself and I, I saw that he was okay. It wasn't like, you know, he was okay. He was still chasing the dough around and away he went. So, uh, so then I'm sitting there and it's, it's around, I got out of the tree stand. I found the arrows. He dropped it like a, I don't know, 25, 30 yards or whatever. So I got the arrow. I got back up in the tree and it's one 30 in the afternoon, right? As it's getting dark, I see this giant deer coming down the hill I'm like, oh man, he's going to go right across that opening in front of me. And it's, it's kind of like dusk and I can't see like really good, but I can see well enough to shoot. So he comes down, I range found him. He stopped in a hole. It said 41 yards. And in my head, I'm like, there's no way that's 41 yards. But in, but I range found again, it said 41 yards. I'm like, okay, put the 40 in center mass and shoot it. I put the pin center mass. I'm holding it. And it won't go off. And I'm like, and I'm thinking like I had, I let down a lot in tournament archery. I'm like, I'm not letting down. So I'm like, I'm holding, I'm like, just relax, just relax. And when the shot fired, I'm like, oh, I got him. Because I, when the arrow went off, when the shot went off, the pin was sitting right behind his shoulder. I knew I had him. So he takes off running and then he goes back up the hill in, uh, I get down out of the tree and uh, I go over to where he was standing. I'm looking around and I'm like, well, I, it, at this point it's dark because I got out of the tree and walked over there. And I'm like, well, I'm going to come back in the morning. I didn't want to push him because I knew that I had smoked him. So I come back in the morning. I climb up the tree. I look to where he was standing and I'm looking, looking, and I'm like, I need to get out of the tree. So I get out of the tree. I go over there. I find my arrow. It's got a little bit of hair on it. And uh, there's no blood or anything. So I find the track where he took off running. I turned around. I range found the tree. It was 50 yards. I had, it was the night before. It was just dusk enough that the range finder must have been picking up a branch. And I never saw the branch. And it was just, it was saying 41. So uh, I shot it for 40. It was 50 yards. And uh, I was 10 yards off and I shot under his belly. Oh, man. So. (laughs) So could have made a better shot. So one thing I always ask our guests is like, what's your equipment? I'm going to ask it a little early because I want to, you know, obviously you're a target archer, so you must do all your own tuning and, you know, bow builds. But what, yeah. what is your hunting rig uh, set up? Uh, <laughs> I use pretty much the same bow I shoot in tournament archery. I just put hunting sight on it and rest. I use a, I use a, I shoot PSE bows. Um, I shot every bow on the market. So, but I mean, currently I'm using PSE bows. Uh, I use a QAD drop away rest and I've used ever since, uh, Easton arrows came out with ACC arrows, which was in the mid nineties, early to mid nineties. I've used ACC 339s and ACC 349s. And then everybody always asks me what I use for broadheads. And for broadheads, I use whatever shoots the best because I have piles of broadheads. So every year I just kind of reach into my broadhead bucket and I shoot a whole bunch of them. And whichever one shoots the best, that's the one I use. I've killed multiple deer and elk with mechanical broadheads and with fixed blade broadheads. I don't really have a preference what I used. So I go by the philosophy. I don't get into all the heavy arrow stuff and stuff like that. I shoot relatively light poundage. Um, I shoot like 57 pounds. And 
I've never had a problem killing anything. And as long as you put the arrow where it's supposed to be, you can use almost anything and, and it'll work. Right. So I what? think people, instead of spending all that time and effort on the super dude, super heavy duty arrow, maybe they should spend more time on shooting. <laughs> that's a, that's a good, uh, a <laughs> good tip for sure. Um, Cause I, if you hit them in the lungs, they're not going far. Right. Um, and, and all the bows nowadays are going to put an arrow through the, you know, the ribs of a whitetail. Yeah. Um, what's your site? What sh- site do you use for, for hunting? I use a true ball XL, uh, achieve. And I, you, what I do is I shoot a scope on it and, uh, you know, like during target season, and then I can just loosen the bolt on the front of it and I can slide fixed pins into it for, uh, for hunting. So that's what I do. Okay. So like a three pin, four pin? I use four pins. Okay. Yep. And I slide them in 20, 30, 40, and 50. Right. And I wouldn't recommend most people, you know, even myself, like hunting wise, I really don't like shooting over 30 yards. Right. Yeah. I mean, you owe it to the animal unless you're, I mean. Yeah. Going out west on some of the, you know, the, I mean, it's still iffy animals move. And when they move, the farther out they are, the more it's going to affect the shot. So Yeah, exactly. It's not a target anymore. Right. <clears throat> yeah, so I, I just wanted to ask, like, you know, was it pre or post? Because, I mean, I, I've, I've come a long way in, like, my archery journey. But, I mean, it, it took me. I mean, I don't know, like 10 years maybe to kill my first deer with a bow. And it took me 10 minutes to shoot at one. I mean, like literally the first time I was in a tree with with a bow in my hand, I was shooting at deer. And it just took me that long because I did get so pumped and so amped. and, and And then I was already like negative in my head like you're gonna miss this one you're gonna hit this one bad you know you're gonna everything was so so bad um it's funny to say that because like your mind has more power over you than you'll ever know because in tournament archery like everything that i do i've already done it in my mind and the same thing with deer hunting when i'm sitting in my stand and i i expect a deer to come from a certain area I see it before it happens. Then I see myself shooting it and stuff like that. So I always try to visualize everything before it happens. So then when it happens, I've already done it. So, I mean, I, I'd recommend like to anybody doing that, like see it before it happens. Cause if you've already accomplished it, it's a lot easier when the time happens. Cause in your head, your, your mind doesn't know the difference between reality and your visualization. It, it just becomes real. So you're like, Oh, I already did this. I'm good. Yeah, I I mean you you talk about like the the feelings when that deer is out there and and that's how you equate that to to target yeah. archery, you know, for for myself, I've never been in a target archery situation where there's been any sort of pressure because I'm like, well, I'm not good at this. But uh, I can tell you once like you had said like being around guys that are shooting and and you know, kind of like learning from, from them, maybe on the the hunting side, but from the shooting side, like watching people that are like really dialed into it. And like, like, so like when I watch John shoot or when 
it was funny because at the Total Archery Challenge, we happened to be behind Andy May. And, like, watching them shoot, they shoot the exact same way. Like, they're, yeah. they are just absolute, like, mechanical yeah. in, in, in such a way. And then even, like, watching them let down and then, like, shake it off. And then it's, it's really something for, I mean, I'm quick draw McGraw. Like I'm on the target, I'm shooting. Like I'm not. I I do have a process, but it's the end the, of the process gets sped up. You know, when I know he knows how to shoot a shoot a shot the correct way, so maybe you should take <laughs> lessons from. Him. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, like you said, you you didn't have like an idea of like who our core listener is. Is uh, you know we have this show as like just regular guys from like a, a DIY perspective. I mean, we're, I'm sitting next to uh, John's, you know, everybody's heard about it, you know, his DIY string jig and, you know, he makes his own strings here in the garage and, you nice. know, we, we go out of state and hunt on our own. Like, you know, this year is the first year that I'm doing any sort of like a, a guided hunt and much to the chagrin of my co-host over here. But it's uh, I'm 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 going with my dad to to share an experience, uh, you know, with you that. Know what? There's nothing wrong with that because I never wanted to go on a guided guided hunt, and uh, my father wanted to go moose hunting, so he talked me into going to Newfoundland, and you can't go to Newfoundland unless you have a guide and outfitter. And I went, and it was the absolute best time I've ever had. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. See, John. Well, see, <laughs> hey, well, I told we've talked about this on the podcast several times, and I'm like, you know, I lost my dad last year, and I would do anything to be able to go on a hunt with him again. And so, I have no qualms about Adam going on a hunt with his dad, you know, whether it's you know with a yeah. guide or a gun, whatever. But he should shoot his elk, his first elk with a bow, and he's going to bring his bow, and it's during gun season. But we'll see how long the bow <laughs> makes it. But but anyway, yeah, <laughs> that that's all on him. Right. <laughs> it was the last day. No, <laughs> why don't I tell everybody? I said I really wish that my bow would make the same noise as my gun. <laughs> <laughs> well, technology's coming around. Like Teslas sound like you can make them sound like whatever you want. So <laughs> if I invent that, maybe I could sell a lot of bows. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but, but yeah, so our our listeners are you know these guys that are you know trying to shoot their first deer, that are trying to shoot their first buck, that are trying to to level up and maybe take a trip out of state. So I mean, to to that guy that needs to to shoot a few few deer to get a get a few under their belt to to shake off the yips, um, you know what advice do you have? for those guys that are, are trying to improve that are, that are setting, starting to set goals to achieve. Um, I, I always recommend the same thing to everybody. Uh, you know, shoot as much as you can shoot around people. You don't know, you know, go to 3d archery shoots. If you can, like, you know, Michigan, you know, you have snow for as long as we have it here, you know, find a place to shoot indoors. Um, indoor shooting will make your nerves go to another level. Um, and then really like, you know, sometimes like at this day and age with social media, everybody lives through social media and they think everybody out there kills big bucks. 
there's no shame in killing a small buck or a doe, you know, stuff like that. And that's how you gain experience. I've killed plenty of small deer in my life and uh, I gained experience through all of them. And as I got older, I just wanted different challenges. And then I'm like, I, I just got to a different level where I'm like, I just want to be able to challenge myself a little more. But like all those days when I was younger and I was just starting to do those things, my standards were a lot different and I'm really thankful for it. Yeah. I think that that gets missed a lot. There's no replacement for experience. And the only way you're going to do it is get out, get them under your belt. Like I, I, I suffered from it last year in elk season. I mean, I've never, the very first time I got drawn back on an elk and it was a nice six by six and I did the same thing. I just completely lost my mind and yeah. just pulled a shitty shot and shot him high through the back in no man's land. And he ran off bugling, you know, it was like, Oh my God, did that just happen? There's nothing like, like a big elk bugle. And when you got a bow drawn, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. So I can tell you a good story if you got a minute. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I've killed a lot of elk with a bow. I've been lucky. Um, but like my father and I, we always did it as, you know, we always hunt as a team or whatever. So, you know, either one of us calls and the other one shoots or whatever. So we got this bull bugling and, uh, we were in this like real thick stuff and it was rocky. So he says, go down in front of me there a little ways and set up. So I get down there, I set up and the sun is right in my face. So the bull's bugling and my father's calling and he's coming up the hill and I can hear the bull walking. And, uh, I, he was really close to me and I'm like, okay, I better draw my bow. Cause I still couldn't see him. Cause I was in between like really thick spruce trees. Then he cuts a bugle, uh, loose and I look down and I can see the shadow of his antlers, but I can't see him yet. And I'm like, oh man, what am I doing? I was scared shitless because I didn't know if the arrow could get off the bow when he stepped into the hole. <laughs> so I'm like, like, you know, your mind goes through a zillion things then. And I'm like, what should I do? What should I do? And I'm like, then he took a step and he, he's right there. Like we're looking like, I like, I mean, he's right in front of me. He's, he like, I ended up shooting the arrow, but he was two and a half steps from me. Oh my God. The arrow goes and I really, I can just re all I can remember was every pin was in the, like on the middle of the animal and he was kind of angling towards me. So I remember every pin's in the middle and I just, I was shooting a caliper then. And I just, I just touched it off. I didn't even, I didn't even think I just wham. And he turns around, he runs down the hill and he turns broadside. I knocked another arrow. I got it like three quarters of the way back. And, and my father can't see this because he's in thick stuff about 50, 75 yards away from me. He yells out, did you hit him? And then the elk takes off running. So I'm like, <laughs> so my father comes down in, uh, we're sitting there looking and I'm like, dad, honestly, I said, I don't even know if I hit it. He says, how could you miss it? It's like two steps from you. I said, I don't know, but I, I don't know if I hit it. So we're looking around and then we found the arrow almost up behind me on the left. It went, it went through, it hit a rib and like ricocheted to the left. So anyhow, where the bullet stopped, where I was going to shoot him the second time, 15 yards away, he just kind of walked a hundred yards away and just fell over. <laughs> oh man. So. I mean, it was just, it was scary, but it was incredible. Like I, it was just awesome. And, uh, so my, I tell everybody my, uh, closest elk I ever killed was two and a half steps and the farthest one was 84 yards. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah. 
we same thing. You know, we've got a bunch of guys that are going out, not uh, you know ourselves, notwithstanding, uh, still trying to shoot our first elk with a bow this year. Uh, what tips do you have for 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 killing them? Uh, you know, at two steps, I guess. <laughs> uh, you want to walk you. You just really have to find them. Um, like elk hunting is different for me than deer hunting. Like I'll just put on as many miles as I can until I find them. And when I find them, I just make sure don't kick them out of there because an elk will go over a mountain and never come back. Like, I mean, it might take him 10 days to come back or whatever. But if you're hunting an area where you can kick them around and they're staying in there, then that's probably a pretty good area because I've never really experienced that. Um so what I do is I just try to just put on a lot of miles till I find them. When I find them, I just kind of sneak and peek until I can maybe get a shot at them. And, uh, and I think it's really important to hunt together as like, you know, teammates. Like I hunt a lot with my friend, Brian, I hunt a lot with my father. Um, and like, we don't care who kills the elk. It's just like, let's get it done. If I, if I'm walking in the front, and like an elk starts bugling, then, you know, Brian will stay in the back and call. If I'm in the back, then I'll stay in the back. And we don't really touch calls a whole lot because nowadays there are people all over elk hunting and everybody likes to go through the woods and blow on cow calls and, and, you know, bugle off mountaintops. And in my experience in the last 30 years, uh, they come into calls less and less. So, I guess in that scenario, like what is your calling strategy or if they're coming into calls less and less, how are you getting them to come in? Or are you just sneaking Um, up on them? It depends because I mean, elk hunting is so much different than deer hunting, but uh, the best thing that the best advice I could give you, get as close as you can to them and then just let out really aggressive bugles because most of the bulls I've killed, I killed just bugling them and they get pissed off and just basically run right in. So you're just getting in their comfort zone, like yeah, where, get- where, where they shouldn't be. I mean, so the, the, the whole scenario of, you know, if you're in a restaurant and there's a guy that's at the door, who's yelling at you and your wife, you're probably going to go out the back door. But if he is at the end of your table and backed you into a corner, like you're going to yeah, end up did. having to fight. Yeah. If he takes a poke at me, he gets his finger in my face, then I'm going to, I'm going to either rip his finger off or I'm going to punch him in the mouth. So, but I mean, but I'm a, I'm a little bit aggressive and if you're not aggressive, then you might do something different. You know, elk are like people, you know, everybody's a little bit different, but I mean, if you get the aggressive ones, they have a little bit of an attitude, then you're, you're, you might get lucky. So. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So John's, John's going to be the caller on this excursion. He's, he's headed out just. Just to be the caller, I didn't get a tag, so my buddy in, who lives in Montana, I'm going to go be his hunting partner. So hopefully, well, we- great because you'll look at it from a different perspective. Because like sometimes, like one of us will kill an elk, and then we're you know we're observers the rest of the week or whatever two weeks, and uh, sometimes you learn a lot more that way because you're not so concentrated on killing an elk. Right, and that's so you're, not- you're taking in the whole experience. Yeah. And that's what I'm excited about. I'm like, I, I'm just as excited to go out. So like last year I had my opportunity. I'm like, Hey, I should have killed an elk. And my buddy Ed, he pretty much could have left his bow back at the camp. It was just all about finding the elk and getting me on an elk. 
Like, yeah. And so I'm like, and he's killed out. He's lived out there for ever since high school. He's been out between Colorado and Montana. And yeah. So, and when you were talking about hunting partners and like saying like, Hey, we should go over there. And then like John and his buddy are like two peas in a pod. They're yeah. clowns. <laughs> like, Hey, we should go up the top of that mountain right there. It's like, okay, let's go. <laughs> well, it sounds like John and I can hunt together. Cause I'm, I'm somewhat mentally deranged when it comes to stuff. <laughs> like a, we have a, we have like a couple 12,000 foot peaks where we hunt and there's no, you know, there's no trees up there. And my buddy, Brian, and I think we have to walk to the top of it just to hang out <laughs> so, oh, yeah. then up there. And you're like, what the heck are we doing up here? Right. It's a good view. <laughs> so what hunts do you have planned this year? Uh, this year, I don't really know. My, my mother's been somewhat sick. Um, so I don't really know what I'm doing. I, I'm still kind of in the air about Colorado. I've hunted Colorado a lot, but the last few years it's been overrun with people where in the areas that I usually hunt. Um, so I think I'm not going there this year, but I, I did draw an Iowa tag this year. Okay. So it's been a while since I hunted there and I don't, I don't know of all the places I've hunted in the Midwest, like public land hunting, Iowa seems to have the most pressure of any place I've hunted and it has the least amount of public land. Hmm. So, I mean, while it's, you know, to be honest, like I've killed deer in every state and I have not killed my biggest, I've hunted Iowa, I think three or four times and I haven't killed my biggest deer there. So. Okay. And what, so what's your goal, uh, heading into Iowa? I know we talked earlier this week and you said as the week wears on the, the goals yeah. change, but I mean, uh, My all goal, things withstanding, Iowa would be the place to. But in all reality, it's not. It uh, like going to Iowa. I have no different goal than any place else that I'm hunting. If I were hunting on private land that was like managed or something, I would have a different goal. But I'm hunting public land. Whenever you're hunting on public land, like don't make your goals unreachable or like not even unreachable, but don't make your goals something that are so hard to achieve because then you feel maybe let down or something. It goes back to that whole experience thing. I'm after a good experience and I want to have a good time and I like venison. So if I, if I'm lucky enough to see a deer, I want to shoot, I'll shoot it. And people always ask me, well, what, what do you, what makes you decide what you're going to pass up? And I'm like, I shoot deer that excite me. If I have a, you know, giant six pointer walk by me and it excites me then i'm gonna shoot it it uh so i don't really have any set goals or expectations i just kind of take it day by day <laughs> cool awesome well we have had a great time talking with you and i mean i think for for our listener for our guys this is you know right up their alley just in the in the terms of both the the information but the attitude as well um more for the for the going out and enjoying yourself than having to prove it to Anybody. everybody else yeah um so where can people follow along with what you're doing and you know like i said you know you've got a, a bunch of books and other things uh where can people find all that um you can follow me on facebook you know under my name i have a i think my profile picture has a big elk on my back um and you can follow me on instagram i use my name there too 
Um, I do have another page on Facebook. I don't really, not too terribly active on it. It's called Back Backcountry Bucks. And that was named, I named the page after my second book, which is no longer available. And then you can find me on my website, which is my name again. It's just www.toddmead.com. Um, and like I said, anybody wants to get a hold of me, all you got to do is message me or email me or give me a call. And, you know, I'm, I try to be available to everybody and I try to give people quick responses. Um, I'm definitely no expert, but I have a lot of years of making a lot of mistakes that gives me a lot of experience to draw from. Awesome, Todd. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks a lot.
Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.